Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And this morning, verses 27 to 30. Here, Jesus teaches us the real meaning of the seventh commandment. Last week, he taught us the meaning of the sixth against murder, including or even by uh, anger or insults. Uh, Today, he turns us to the command about marriage and sex, about lust and uh, adultery. You know, sometimes in writing a sermon, you try to find a hook that will grab people's attention. But I suspect just stating the theme has already captured most of you. Let me say this as well. These two sins, sixth and seventh, unjust anger and unbridled lust, also happen to be the two troubling things about myself that drove me the age of 18 to seek forgiveness in Jesus and help, frankly, power for living. And in particular, this one, lust. It's a subject I know a lot about. I will not be casting the first stone today. So, sex and marriage, lust and adultery. We might as well throw hell into the mix too, and that's exactly what Jesus actually does. So, let me invite you to hear God's word and consider it and what it means for each of us. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 27. This is the word of God. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, That everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Amen. This is God's word. May he cut our hearts with it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would be our teacher, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that you would deal graciously and truthfully uh, with our souls and by this word. And by the work of your spirit, for I am not worthy and nor are any of us to hear you, but by your grace. So speak to us and save us and sanctify us by this word. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. What I'd like to consider today are really four things. The first is the reality of lust among the disciples of Jesus, which is the theme. And then... Verse 27, the positive requirement, protecting true love. Then the negative prohibition against lust, verse 28, followed by the encouragement for us to kill lust for the sake of true love in verses 29 to 30. Those four things. In the first place, I want you to think about the reality of lust among the disciples of Jesus. Now, parents of young children, I am aware that today's topic is sensitive. It's also really important, and our culture isn't helping us here at all. 
Uh, We need, however, to talk about these things in the way that God's word talks about them. Because Jesus wants to help us. That's why he talks about it. He knows what we need to hear. And children, I want to say this to you. Some of you won't understand some of the sins anyway of of what we're talking about here. And that's okay. (laughs) Just as as we mature as human beings from drinking mother's milk to eating mushed vegetables to finally arriving at meat and potatoes. So likewise, we mature uh, in body uh, sexually. And as we get closer and closer to puberty and the awakening of sexual desire, these things become more obvious to us personally. And yet we find sin waiting for us there, uh, perhaps even ever more strongly. And I'm also aware that we are, frankly, a very young congregation with many youth, uh, young adults, young singles, uh, engaged people, newlyweds, uh, families with young children, and uh, this is a a constant issue for many. Um, I wish I could tell you all sin goes away when you get older. I can't. We need to hear what Jesus has to say to us here, though. And here he talks about the breaking of the seventh commandment through not just committing adultery with the body, but also with the lust of the heart and our hands. Just as we break the commandment about murder by anger in our heart, we can break the commandment against adultery through lust in the heart and what we do with our eyes. So this isn't... Uh, just an issue for non-Christians. Jesus isn't just speaking to a bunch of non-Christians hoping to get them converted so that they never sin again in this way. Jesus is actually talking to Christians, disciples, his people, about problems that they're going to wrestle with. And I, I just thought it would be helpful for you to recognize down through the ages some who've struggled here. Think of origin of Alexandria in the early church. When his father was martyred, He was just 16 years old at the time, and he began to sport his mother and siblings by teaching. In his classes, however, there were both young women as well as young men, and he he was very aware of the danger of sexual desire. And so Origen very famously had himself castrated. He he thought that he was doing what the Lord uh, said uh, a tempted man should do, you know, gouge out an eye, cut out a cut off an arm, take care of the problem once and for all. He later admitted that that was not the wisest course of action, nor what Jesus was actually commanding here, which is obviously the case. I hope you understand Jesus is exaggerating for effect. He's giving hyperbole when he talks about maiming the body. However, so many in the early church followed the example of origin and misunderstood what Jesus is teaching that by the time 100 years later you get to the Council of Nicaea in 325, they actually had to forbid the practice of self-mutilation among believers. Or consider the testimony of the early church leader and scholar Jerome by whom the church got the Latin translation of the Bible. He was a man who needed to be married. He needed a positive outlet for his desires. As a young man, however, he indulged in sexual activity that later filled him with self-loathing. And even after his uh, baptism into the church, he um, found himself in the grip of passions which seemed out of his control. Later he wrote, quote, When I was a young man... And walked in by the solitude of the desert, 
and, and walled in by the solitude of the desert, I was unable to resist the allurements of vice and the hot passions of my nature. What he means is this. He had gone into the monastic life to remove himself from temptation And he went out into the desert, he was one of those desert nomads, to be alone. Yet, as he says, he carried in his own imagination a thousand girls with him. He couldn't get away from the sinfulness sinfulness of his own heart, is what he's saying. And then there's George Whitfield, the great evangelist of the Great Awakening, both in America and Britain. As a young man, he was oppressed by what he called, quote, An abominable secret sin, the dismal effects of which I have felt and groaned under ever since. What was it? Well, he had begun writing excerpts from the popular book in that day, Onania, or The Heinous Sin of Self-Pollution, subtitle, hoping to publish a tracked, excerpt version of the longer book. The title of the book was taken from the behavior of Onan, the son of Judah, from Genesis 38. I'll leave it to you to consider what that sin was. Whitfield here wondered in his journal, quote, why God had given me passions and not permitted me to gratify them. This secret or darling sin of his was casting him into doubt whether Christ had really come into his life. Years later, Whitfield was still wrestling with this unnamed sin, his thorn in the flesh, he called it. Yet none of us doubt that Whitfield was a man who trusted in Christ to save him. He was devoted to the Lord and to the gospel and to faithfulness in his service. And yet he struggled, as most believers do, with forms of breaking the seventh commandment. Or consider... By, as one more example, consider Cornelius Van Til. Some of you immediately know the name, others won't. He was a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. And as an old man, he retired. But he would still have seminary students to his house. And one asked him what it was like to be at such an age that sexual temptation was no longer a problem. And Dr. Van Til looked at him and said, Van Til looked at him and said, I wouldn't know, young man. The sins of my youth are the sins of my old age. Jesus knows that his disciples will struggle with both anger, sixth commandment, and lust, seventh, from the heart. And he knows that's why we need him to forgive us so the law leads us to Christ for salvation. And he knows that's why we need him to sanctify us. And so the law leads us to him for power in weakness and a guide for living and to humble us continually. It may be the reason you continue to struggle with these things is because he wants you to continue to know your own weakness And to continue to feel your own need of him. Even as you repent and then repent again. And so, secondly then, not only lust among the disciples of Jesus, 
But I want you to see at verse 27, through the negative command, Jesus is actually protecting true love and marriage. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now that's just a verbatim uh, from the Old Testament Ten Commandments law. Uh, Jesus isn't quarreling with that command. He's affirming it. He's going to quarrel with the scribes and Pharisees' false interpretation of it. They said it was just about the body, the physical action of adultery with another human being. And Jesus takes it to the heart and speaks to it in other ways. But Jesus here, as God's word does, prohibits adultery. Why? Because positively, of course, God wants to protect something that's vulnerable to betrayal and pain and sorrow. And that is the marriage relationship, right? The positive side of the seventh commandment is that sex is God's good gift and it's for marriage. Do not commit adultery. Don't engage in sexual relations outside of marriage because God is positively for loving, healthy, committed, joyful sexual unions of a man and a woman in the state of marriage. And it's for that relationship only. And it's to be enjoyed in that relationship. In a covenant relationship. And it's not to be used as a consumer, in a consumer relationship, as Tim Keller puts it. Very helpfully, I think. What, what's, a, what's, a, what's a consumer relationship? It's like a business relationship, you know, with a vendor. I'm 50% committed. You meet my needs? Great. But I'm always looking for a step up in service. I'm looking for the next vendor who can satisfy me on better terms. And there's no stability, of course, in that kind of relationship. It's temporary. But a covenant relationship is the opposite. It's not, I use you until you're not measuring up or performing for me. But it's a relationship in which I say, I am 100% committed to you for the well-being of you and in service of you. And so then the relationship is uh, more important than my needs in that sense. As, as Keller puts it, if a covenanter and a consumer get into a relationship, it's bad for the covenanter, but it seems good for the consumer because it's an exploitative relationship. But if two covenanters are in the relationship, it's marriage as God intended. You're both in it 100% for the blessing of the other And that's a zone of security. It's a place of safety where you can be who you are, honestly. In the consumer model, you got to perform. You got to market yourself. You got to jump through hoops. But God meant it to be a a covenantal good. The world says it's a, a consumer good. I need affection. I need affirmation. I need satisfaction. I need to find somebody to give it to me. And if they don't do it well enough, I'm. I'm welcome to find somebody new. But God says sex is more like it, it more like a sacrament. It's not a sacrament, but within marriage it functions in a similar kind of way. It's a bond of our union and it's a renewal of our covenant commitment to one another. It's it's even a, a physical external external sign of your what? Of your total personal commitment to one another. It's an act of self-giving and self-commitment. It's part of the 
as another put it, the naked vulnerability of the whole life. In, in marriage, becoming naked together is to be a sign of what you've done with your whole life. You've given up your independence. You've committed yourself wholly and completely unto the other, your spouse, forsaking all others. And that's why sex outside of marriage lacks integrity. You're doing with your body with another human being what you aren't willing to do with the rest of your life. Right? You're saying, let's be physically vulnerable with each other. But I'm going to keep back from you everything else that is really important until I find somebody I can invest that in. C.S. Lewis says this, the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, sexual, from all other kinds of union, which are intended to go along with it and make up the total union. So outside of marriage, it isn't a total union as it was meant to be, and it isn't then being enjoyed in the way it was meant to be enjoyed. But if you have sex inside the covenant, it's a covenant renewal ceremony. It, it, it's saying time and again, I'm married to you all over again. I am yours. You are mine. And it deepens your commitment. It uh, solidifies and nurtures your commitment and that relationship. Um, I'm giving you me. My body is a token of giving you all of me. But outside of marriage, you're saying, I love the feeling I get when I'm with you. And who doesn't love good feelings, right? Or I I love the feeling I get by reeling you in and keeping you on the hook. But what you're doing is you're taking, you're not giving. There's an article in the New York Times, published ironically enough, on April 14th, uh, seven years ago. It was by a clinical psychologist entitled The Downside of Cohabiting Before Marriage, in which uh, the article said this. More and more studies show that people who live together before marriage are more likely to divorce than people who don't. People who sleep together before marriage are more likely to injure their marriage than people who don't. That runs counter to everything our culture is telling you, everything TV and movies and radio and music and Hollywood and everybody else is saying. Try them out, the world is saying. Find out if you're compatible and drop them if it doesn't work for you that way. As one woman said in the article, I felt like I was on this multi-year never-ending audition to be his wife. So if you're sleeping together before marriage, it's a consumer relationship. You're holding out the possibility of finding somebody better. Can I, can I do better than you? And so what is sex in that? It's marketing. It's attracting. It's enticing. It's trying to keep the relationship going. It's not trusting and giving and resting. Which means they're really two very different things. They're not the same thing at all. God says we are not to do with our body what we aren't willing to do with our whole life. Commit 
to one. And he says that because he wants you to enjoy the good blessing of the total union in his way, in marriage. So that's the second thing I want you to see, how this is really designed to protect something really good. Thirdly, I want you to see this at verse 28. Jesus condemns lust. But I say to you, having quoted the commandment, but I say to you, he says, not in contradiction to the command, but to the scribes and the Pharisees, by teaching us the true meaning of it, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now here, Jesus is not saying that all sexual desire is wrong. As if it's all of the devil and God is against it and that even a married man looking at his own wife with desire would be wrong. But of course, I mean, if you held that view, you'd have to like deny everything else the Bible teaches on this subject that Jesus teaches on this subject through the prophets and apostles he inspired, right? And we could look at this at greater length, but I mean, just reflect. If you go all the way back to the very beginning at Genesis 2, what do you have? The first couple, right? It was not good that Adam was alone. God made Eve and brought her to the man. And Adam bursts into love song. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Poetry, right? Now don't forget they're naked. So that this is how the Bible starts. A naked man singing rapturous love songs over the body of a naked woman in the presence of God. That's how the Bible begins. Or think of Proverbs chapter 5. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, the scripture says. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. The Bible forbids you to get drunk on alcohol, but it actually commands you to be drunk on the love, the sexual love of your spouse. And then, of course, there's the great romantic and erotic love poem, don't allegorize it, of Song of Solomon. Where the, the poetic description of married love are so explicit in certain places, most translators kind of pull their punches, punches chicken out and don't translate them as clearly as they are. Because it's clear in certain places that an excited man is looking at an excited woman and they're doing it in delight as a married couple. So all that to say, what Jesus is getting at here is he is not forbidding all sexual desire. What he is forbidding is lust. Everyone looking at a woman to desire her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Looking there is the present participle. It's a studied look with sexual intent. Jesus isn't saying here that you might notice that somebody is beautiful or attractive. And even just objectively recognize they're beautiful. That's an attractive human being. A person could do that without doing it with sexual intentions towards them. But here, looking at a woman with the intention of lusting after her, desiring her, 
uh, for themselves in a sexual way is committing adultery in the heart. Now, obviously here, Jesus, in speaking of the man doing it, uh, is, in, is not you know, an unequal opportunity uh, condemner here. Um, it, it, it's not that just only men struggle with lust, but he's talking to male disciples in a culture dominated by Jewish teachings on the freedom of male sexuality and uh, the suppression of female sexuality. Uh, it, it used to be common to say that men lust and women lust to be lusted for. And while there's truth in that, it's also true and Arguably, in my 20 plus years of college campus ministry, I've seen the whole shift that women more and more are either more honest about or um, more cultivated by our culture towards lust itself. But either way, this is a thing that men and women struggle with. And Jesus here uses a very particular kind of word when he talks about lust. It's a word for, that's, that's used for coveting. A word for use for idolatry and greed. It's the word in the 10th commandment translated from the Hebrew into Greek that the translators in the Septuagint picked up uh, to say you shall not covet your neighbor's uh, wife. It's a word that means coveting, which the Bible calls idolatry. And it usually refers to greed or greediness. And so just think about that imagery, right? Um, Is... Is something, so think about greed, is something wrong uh, with making money, according to the Bible? Or even having a lot of money, according to the Bible? The answer to that is no, not, not inherently. I mean, Abraham and Job were wealthy people, and they were godly. So what is greed? It's the desire to have the money for selfish purposes, for you, and not to share and you, you have to have it in such a way that you'll cut corners to get it. You'll trample on others to get it. And you're looking to that money to give you satisfaction and security in life that you're supposed to see from God. And find in resting in God's security of you. That's, that's greed. And Jesus says it's possible to have that same kind of idolatrous attitude towards sex. And and maybe the classic example is pornography and its use and self-satisfaction. Sex is for giving, the Bible says. It's for serving. It's not just for receiving. But porn does what? Well, it tramples on women, women. It denigrates women. It uses them as objects for personal pleasure and your own satisfaction. And you aren't trusting in God to provide for you his good gift in a righteously satisfying enjoyment in marriage. No, you're trusting in yourself to provide for yourself. So you're taking and not giving. And I I just want to pause here and, and warn us. Look, all the research shows that those who use pornography have crushingly unrealistic expectations about the physical appearance and the sexual performance of the person they're with. Crushingly unrealistic expectations about what a marriage partner ought to look like and what a marriage partner ought to do. Plus, 
a significant number of male porn users suffer a diminished tolerance for, and I'm quoting the research of others here. If you want to know the book, I can tell you later. Uh, have a diminished tolerance for the difficulties of real relationships. And so it shrinks the pool of available men for women because the men are hiding because a real relationship is difficult at times. It causes you to confront who you are as a sinner. It causes you to relate to another sinner and engage in real relationship. And, and, and rather, we, it's much easier to shrink from that and do your own thing. Do you see, at least in part, why this uh, damages you and it damages others and it damages marriages and it damages families and relationships? Why the world is torn apart by unfettered lust that leads to adultery and the destruction of people and marriages. So what is Jesus' counsel here? And the warnings are strong. What does he counsel? That's where we'll close. Notice verse 29 and 30. He encourages us, I put it this way, to kill lust. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And as I said, we are all sinners here. Nobody up here is casting the first stone, but Jesus has every right to condemn us for our sin in this area. He is God. Do you know the expression, sow a thought, reap a mindset, sow a a mindset, reap a habit, sow a habit, reap a destiny? Jesus is warning us here about lust and adultery unrepented of and where it leads. We talk a lot about works at Redeemer and we say our works can't merit us heaven. And that's true. But our works do merit us hell, which is what Jesus is saying here. Every one of us deserves hell. For our breaking of this commandment. Verse 30. And if your right hand causes you to sin. Cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members. Than that your whole body go into hell. Now what is Jesus saying? Well he's not saying what Origen thought he was saying. And actually self mutilate. He's also not saying what. He might have said and does say on other occasions about dealing with lust. I mean, just for instance, a sermon on what Jesus doesn't say in this passage. But, but for instance, he's not trying to say everything. Jesus doesn't hear counsel singles with what he will eventually say through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, that it is better to, better to marry than to burn with passion. That embracing, in other words, the positive command in its proper environment is a way to combat the negative. It won't get rid of all your problems of of a sinful heart. But the righteous enjoyment of the positive sexual desire is actually a good thing and a help. So he'll say in that passage, 
that the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and the, likewise the wife to her husband. He doesn't mention here God's provision of marriage for righteous satisfaction in the context of covenant married love, but it's assumed. The neighbor love we owe in our marriage is part of how we avoid and help our spouse avoid and therefore help other married people and unmarried people avoid defrauding one another. Nor does Jesus here tell married people to not abstain except by mutual consent and even then only for a limited time, as he does say in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Some of us live in marriages where you're abstaining a lot, but not by mutual agreement. Some of you live in marriages where your partner hasn't really been honest with you, nor perhaps have you really been listening to how frequently per week it might help them not struggle with sexual temptation and sinful thoughts, at least as much. And yes, you heard me say per week. Go ahead and ask your spouse if once a week is too little. And really listen to what they say. We are to be intimate allies with one another. In helping one another in our sanctification and obedience to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7 is all about how marriage is designed to be an aid in that. Even while we have to wrestle with our own sinful heart. We also could turn to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And speak of it like Paul does in Romans 6, right? This is, a, this is again a different sermon. Where there he talks about how in Christ we have died with Christ to the slavery of sin as a master that commands us. And we've been raised to newness of life that we might walk in obedience, in new obedience. And so he'll say because of that, count yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God. Count on it to be true because it is true. So when sin whispers in your ear, you must, you can always say, I do not have to. I'm not your slave. I'm the slave of God. And so he says, offer the parts, the members. It's very graphic. The members of your body to God as instruments for righteousness. The members of your body are part of a war. They're tools in that war. Now that's a whole other sermon. <laughs> you see what I'm doing here? Or we could turn to Romans 8. Romans 8, where he acknowledging in chapter 7, even then, even believing that, the good I want to do, I do not do, and the evil I do not want to do, that I keep doing. Who will rescue me? And so in Romans 8, he says, now by the Holy Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the body. And as one pastor properly put it, Romans 8 Romans 6 and Romans 8 are true, but you will never get out of Romans 7 until glory. We are all struggling with the fight. So what is Jesus, what is Jesus teaching us here? It's not everything. So what's the point of what he's teaching here? He is teaching us to hate sin. And as long as you love it and think it's great, you'll never say no. You'll never fight it. You'll never want to quit it. He's piling up incentives then to kill it, 
He wants us to see how evil our lust is and to be horrified by it. And to do so, he says, you know what you deserve for it? You deserve Gehenna. That place of fire outside Jerusalem that was the garbage dump where the the fires burn continually, which is his depiction of what hell is. That's what we deserve. And he asks you to ask yourself, do you prefer heaven to hell? And so do you prefer repenting of sin and fighting sin rather than loving sin and walking freely in the paths of sin? Jesus says, have you considered where this leads? Have you thought it through? A life given over to lost without repentance, a life that isn't fighting sin but embracing it as a way of life, a heart of lust that leads to physical adultery and the way of adultery is the way of death and it leads to hell. Do you really want to go there? He's inviting you to ask. What do you really want? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? What does it profit a man if he gains seven lovers or 30 lovers but forfeits his soul and loses the love of his creator in a world of love that's called heaven? Jesus says, you know what? It would be better for you to tear out your eyeball and throw it away. To cut off your hand and throw it away. He means take radical steps against whatever leads you to sin and cultivates and nourishes and inflames sin. Flee temptation like Joseph from Potiphar's wife. Like Billy Graham, who wouldn't step into an elevator with a woman alone, in part to protect his public ministry. He didn't want to be caught getting off that elevator and have some pictures show up on the nightly news, of course. Nobody mocked him. And then Mike Pence had a, a slightly more relaxed view of how he ought to relate to women in public and private places. And he got mocked for it until the Me Too movement went so wildly public that there's not as much mocking of a, a Mike Pence these days. It may mean for you and me, I don't know, to throw out books and magazines, get rid of porn, maybe get rid of the computer. I've seen young men in this congregation living on their own for the first time refuse to get internet in their homes so that they wouldn't have easy access. So they actually had to go to the library to access the internet simply to keep them off porn. Others have programs like Covenant Eyes, Safe Eyes, and other things to refrain them, to restrain them. Maybe even things that report them to beloved uh, friends, uh, mothers, spouses, just as a way to curb and check their heart. Some of you check the movies and TV shows you're going to watch on Things like uh, the, uh, the parent reviews on IMBD because it'll explicitly tell you what you're going to see and hear in that movie. Just as a way to avoid content that incites you or maybe family members you're responsible for. One man in another town was tempted by a billboard that went up that he passed by every day inviting him to a poorly misnamed gentleman's club, which is anything but... And he finally had to take a different way to the office, which was a longer route, simply to avoid the temptation 
that he felt. You do these kinds of things if you take seriously the fight with lust. What steps are you taking to kill sin before it kills you? Are you caught up in adultery? Are you struggling? Do you feel trapped? Why do you struggle with lust? Because long ago, a man and a woman saw something that didn't belong to them. It looked good to their eyes, and they took it with their hand, and they ate it. And everything changed. They changed, and we, their descendants, changed. We have a sin nature now like them and a sexual instinct that's gone bad. And what I can tell you is this. This is exactly why Jesus came. You need his forgiveness in your failure. You need his power in your weakness. You need his hope in your despair. And Satan may tempt you to say, I could never confess this to Christ or people in this church. And I said, because then they would ostracize me. And I want to say to you, we would not be shocked if lust is an issue for you, if adultery has become an issue for you, we would love you, we would grieve with you, we would pray for you, we would talk, we would hold you accountable. I I say that on behalf of myself and the elders, and I know that the women's leadership would do that as well. Let me invite you to limp into heaven, to change the metaphor of what you cut off. Let me invite you to limp into heaven on one foot with us rather than walk straight into hell on two working legs because you were too proud to seek help from Jesus. And so then let me invite you to this table where you are invited by Jesus again and again to look with your eyes and to take with your hand the symbols of him who was cut off from God on the cross that you might be welcomed and embraced by a Savior who loves sinners. Let's put our hopes in Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the goodness and sweetness of a Savior who knows us and knows our need. Help us, forgive us, cleanse us again and again. Strengthen us. Help us to be more like Christ. Teach us to love what you love, to hate what you hate. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.